all of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fairn and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, friends, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my co-host, Greg Farron. Greg, what is going on, dude? Doing all right. Doing all right. I'm excited again about today's guests. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And this, we kind of pulled an opposite. Last time we recorded like hella early, I think like 8.30 a.m. And now we're doing like p.m., like yeah. almost 12 hour difference. Yeah. So we'll see how it, ending. Yeah, it's like a uh, an experiment to see, you know, how, when, when we when we podcast best morning or evening. We need feedback. We def- we need feedback about Josh's performance. We just right. want Josh's performance. <laughs> oh, man. Well, before we jump in again, I just want to I'm going to keep annoying people by telling them about Theology Beer Camp because it's going to be super fun. Um, and I had mentioned this last on the last episode, but October 13th through 15th in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Homebrewed Christianity is hosting Theology Beer Camp. That's Trip Fuller. And he, for whatever reason, decided to invite us, Greg. So I'm excited for that. Deeply encouraging and very excited. That's going to be an epic experience. Yeah. And I'm brewing a beer for it. So like, if you want the beer that I brew specifically for the event, then you should probably go, right? Right. With a custom can and a custom can, Yeah, a custom can. Yeah. It's going to be cool. And there's like, so I'll I'll list some of the other uh, podcasts here that'll be there. So it looks like the new evangelicals will be there. Uh, Our buddy, Dan Coke over at you have permission, the Bible for normal people, a people's theology, activist theology, tiny revolution, brew theology, the Reverend Hunter crackers and grape juice, Tom Ward. Come on, Brian McLaren. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, Diana Butler Bass will be there. Oh my God. Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie. Oh my goodness. Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, Aaron Simmons, my favorite Kierkegaard nerd, uh, will be there. He's like the head or president of the Kierkegaard Society, which is a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's always good when people are more nerdy than I am. It makes me feel better about myself. 
Uh, but yeah, friends, if you want to join us there, it's uh, theologybeer.camp is the website. And we have a code. Uh, what is the code? It's rethink. And that code, <laughs> rethink <laughs> one word. <laughs> and it'll get you $50 off the price of admission. So, uh, all right. Enough talking about stuff. I'm still not used to this whole call to action thing. Feels weird to me. But here we are. Anyway, Theology Beer Camp is in the past. And now for the present moment with our guest, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. Did I say it right? Last name? You did. Nailed it. All right, Jennifer, how are you doing this evening? I'm very great. Not bad at all. Good. Really glad glad to have you here. Welcome, welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so um, just quickly, so, or as long as you want, (laughs) Um, for people who maybe are not familiar with yourself and your work, would you like to share as much or as little about yourself uh, as you would for our listeners to kind of get to know you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll start with the present and then I'll go to the past because that might be helpful. I teach New Testament and Christian ministry at Campbell University, which is in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. I've been teaching there for five years. Before that, I actually taught at East Texas Baptist University, which is in Marshall, Texas. And so um, I am Baptist, actually. That's why I was teaching there. And I grew up Southern Baptist in Texas, which is maybe the worst place to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I, I was called to ministry and went to Baylor and went to seminary there at Baylor um, and then eventually took the academic route because it was actually easier than trying to be a pastor as a woman in the Baptist church. So I took the academic route, went to Fuller Seminary for my PhD in New Testament. Um, yeah, I'm married and have three kids, um, and loving life in North Carolina. I really actually like living here in North Carolina. So that's, uh, that's me. Nice. Okay. So just, just for clarification, because I think there's uh, some folks may not know, and, you know, Baptist has interesting connotations, particularly Southern Baptist, but there's a lot of Baptists, right? There's a lot of, just like there's a lot of Presbyterians and d- different uh, beliefs. So, so kind of in your evolution from growing up in Texas as a Southern Baptist, which I do think my, my heart, I, when you said that my heart actually broke a bit, when you said that you had to pursue academia because the idea of being a yeah. pastor was off limits, not an option. Yeah. But would you mind just just telling just I know I want to get to your book, which I'm really excited about scapegoating. But tell us a little bit just about that journey from kind of a conservative Southern Baptist upbringing to uh, pursuing your Ph.D. And maybe that you're still a Baptist, but maybe in a, a different genre of Baptist. Yeah. So um, I I mentioned that I felt a call to ministry growing up and I went to Baylor and um, as much as I kept feeling like I need to do church ministry, I got a lot of discouragement from people around me, Uh, but I still went to seminary. um, And then my, my professors, you know, encouraged me, well, maybe you should get a, get a PhD. Uh, I'm glad they did because I would have, I think, walked a really rocky road to try to get into, into especially pastoral ministry. I actually did children's ministry and youth ministry um, in Southern Baptist churches in Texas when I was in college and seminary, but um, it was rough I and mean, it was not easy. So when I moved to California for my PhD, I became American Baptist and I worked at American Baptist church and I was a youth minister and then I was associate pastor during my PhD. And then they ordained me. So I'm ordained American Baptist, which is, um, 
I mean, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. was, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so that kind of Baptist. Um, but I still have a lot of interactions with Southern Baptists because my students, um, some of them come from Southern Baptist churches. And so I am definitely, I still connected to them. Uh, but there are so many other kinds of Baptists, right? There's the cooperative Baptists, which are the group that, that broke off of Southern Baptists because they supported women in ministry. So you have them and they're kind of in the South mostly. And I very much interact with them. Alliance Baptists are um, probably the most progressive Baptists. They're open and affirming and um, they're not a huge denomination, but they are Baptists. So yeah, many different kinds of Baptists. And I know a lot of them. So nice, nice. And and just, and just briefly. So, so in that journey in in academia, and and this is kind of a, a segue into your book, uh, this book about scapegoating uh, the gospel through the eyes of victims. I already perceiving from your own experience, the evolution of the magnetic draw to that topic, but uh, just kind of maybe just as we begin to get into your book, if you could just nutshell for us and not even nutshell, nutshell is an inappropriate word for this, but distill for us, this this concept of scapegoating and maybe to if you wouldn't mind just nesting it in a little bit of your story what was it that drew you to this topic to because if, if this is what your phd was revolving around and if that you would give the time to writing this clearly that's a passion project that's rolling from the inside out so just kind of before we dive into the the, the brilliant academics of your writing and maybe nest it in what you felt like was the magnetic attraction from your heart to this topic yeah, so one of the largest scapegoats, not just in our society, but throughout history, have been women. Um, and I don't think that we recognize that that plays out very much in the church. Um, and so having the challenges that I had um, trying to follow a call to ministry in uh, the Baptist church, you know, it, it, it was a heart project at first. I mean, more so than even a head project, like realizing that um, we do not recognize the ways that we scapegoat women and how women have been scapegoated throughout history. Um, and so, but then I got involved in reading Rene Girard and that really helped me kind of look at it through the perspective, not just of um, anthropology and um, history, but literature. And then that led me into um, using Gerard to look at the gospels. Um, and so kind of all the things that I love came together in this project because it um, the scapegoating helped me think about ways that I can help other women um, who are called to ministry, right? Um, but then I love the gospels too. And so to be able to use Gerard, um, as I looked at the gospels, like all it kind of came together well, I think. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, so, but when it comes to scapegoating, uh, which is a phrase that I've, uh, become more and more familiar with, especially after reading your book. Uh, but for maybe we have listeners that are like, okay, guys, you've said this word scapegoating like 900 times what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so like, if you could just share with us a little bit, like what, what do we mean when we talk about uh, scapegoating? What is this? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I'll start with a, um, a general description and then I'll move, move to Gerard's more specific description, but, you know, scapegoats are people, individuals or groups who um, are, who carry the blame 
um, of a society often. Um, what happens is people in the center of society tend to um, push the blame of problems in their own lives and in the society onto people um, who are on the margins. And so scapegoats are often people who um, are on the margins of society. Um, and let me give you an example, an ancient example, and then a modern example. So that might help you. So an ancient example would be, and we'll get into this probably more when we talk about Gerard, um, but, but ancient societies um, tended to be, you know, very violent as human beings are when they come together um, in civilization. Um, and so a lot of times to alleviate some of the violence in society, um, communities would focus all of their um, sort of anger, all of their violence onto one person onto one object. Um, and that tended to be um, someone who was on the margin, someone maybe who was not from the community, um, maybe who, who had come into the community late, someone who had some sort of deformity or looked different or didn't have a lot of family um, or belonged to a, a more marginalized group. So they tended to offer these people up as scapegoats um, and sort of the sins, the anger, the violence of that society will be focused on that person. And that person would either be exiled sent out of the society or they would be killed. Um, lots of ancient societies practice sacrifice of scapegoats um, and so they would be killed. So that's not how it works in modern day scapegoating most of the time, uh, but in modern day scapegoating, um, usually it's a, it would be a slow death. Like um, an example would be the way that Americans tend to scapegoat immigrants. Um, people who are maybe um, fleeing unrest in their countries and they try to come um, and flee to our country and they start saying, well, these immigrants are taking our jobs and they're doing horrible things in our society. Um, and so they put blame for certain sins in society on that group um, because they are marginalized and, and it kind of alleviates some of the tension um, in a society. And a lot of times the people who are doing the blaming are those who are threatened because their power is maybe waning in society or something like that. So that is, is what modern scapegoating um, tends to look like. So, so scapegoats have been, um, have been throughout history, right? Different societies, um, individuals will scapegoat individuals, families often have scapegoats in their family, um, you know, so it's it's a wide variety of things, um, but mainly it's, it's people who are marginalized who um, carry the blame of society because those in the center have put it on them. Hmm. So, so thinking about th this concept that it, and and maybe maybe it would be interesting. Is this is this found anthropologically around the globe? You know, is this is this kind of a a common human impulse or an instinctual impulse uh, in in people's fragility or fear? I mean, what what has been found? I mean, obviously we know we we find it in uh, the Bible, uh, but and well, I'm sure we'll get into that more. But, you know, just anthropologically, what have the findings been in terms of this? And has it almost been codified into society as acceptable behavior? Or is it just more sometimes uh, this, this fear-based uh, uh, rhetoric uh, that to, to inflame a crowd and to solidify a constituency? How, how do you see it unfolding? Yeah, so I think this is a good time to bring Rene Girard into to the conversation because that's what he did. Um, he went through ancient literature of all different societies. Um, he kind of observed um, different patterns that happened throughout different civilizations. And the pattern he observed is, and I'm going to go a little bit backwards into his theory here, but um, 
the pattern he observed is that um, because people have this tendency to um, to imitate others. So he talks about mimetic theory. This is Rene Girard's sort of um, building block. So because people tend to imitate other people, they imitate one another, then they start something called mimetic desire. Um, and so they want what other people have, then they also want to be that other person. And then that starts conflict in between individuals. And then it grows and it becomes conflict in society. And Gerard found this in many different societies across the globe and throughout different um, eras in history. And so this conflict starts to rise. And so um, there's a lot of vocabulary around this conflictual mimesis, he calls it. Um, and then, then the violence rises and rises in a society until um, it is uh, no longer tenable. They cannot um, they cannot deal with it unless there's like a escape valve or something. And that's, that's the scapegoat mechanism. Um, so they will focus their, their violence onto one person or one, sometimes one small group, but usually it's, it's a person. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a human tendency, um, that Gerard found. He actually found it first in, in novels in like the great, great, you know, European novels, he sees it there and then he goes and traces it throughout history. Um, and he finds it in the Bible, though he says that it looks a little different in the Bible than it does in other ancient societies. But I might stop there and see if you have any questions because that was a lot. <laughs> no, that was awesome. That was really helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to me because I guess like the, just to try to give like an example to make sure that I'm understanding properly. So when you're talking about um, like the society bit um, with like the mimetic bit where people uh, copy each other, is this similar to like when it's almost like when you start, like how like riots work, like when there's a, like a little bit of violence thrown into a crowd of people, like it just takes on a mind of its own almost, right? It seems like some kind of external force is now like in this group of people and then everybody kind of joins in and, and partakes. Is it like similar to that? Yes, uh, mob violence is a really good example. Um, Cause often, I mean, Gerard and other people will call it like a scapegoating mob. There is something that happens when people come together and it just multiplies the anger and multiplies the violence. So yeah, that's a that's a really good example of how it does take on a mind of its own. Um, and then something has to alleviate that, like that tension and that danger, and they have to focus their anger somewhere, right? And so it ends up being on on individuals usually. It it, it makes me think about uh, I don't know if you've read the work of uh, Gerald Maves, a psychiatrist and a, a theologian, but he talks about the capacity of humanity that we're hardwired both for violence and for compassion that that built into our evolutionary hardwiring is this capacity for great uh terror and violence and also for incredible compassion and tenderness and uh really this this journey is about uh which one we're going to cultivate um and uh which one that we choose to cultivate through i mean we can choose hopefully it's a spiritual path that does that or maybe a political path on some rare occasion that actually encourages compassion um but but you know to me it's not a surprise you know in in the evolution of humanity uh that in these uh cultures uh that in in the fear 
uh, in this evolving consciousness that there would be uh, this primitive impulse towards violence. Mm-hmm. Um, when so obviously Gerald May found it. Excuse me, it's not Gerald May. Uh, Rene Gerard, Rene found it. Uh, Rene Gerard found it everywhere. Maybe unpack a little bit more for us now, specifically within our context of uh, spiritual evolution, both within the Hebrew Scriptures uh, and our New Testament. How how that scene and how you saw you, you could see that begin to evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, Gerard says that human beings um, formed religion in order to sort of alleviate this violence. And he says um, they do several different things. They have um, religion will give you like prohibitions or laws, right? That will help sort of curb some violence, right? Um, and there's also rituals. And this is where the scapegoat ritual comes in. And then there's also myth, mythology, or or the stories of, of origins. Um, and so he, he finds all of those. And, but when he looks in the Hebrew scriptures first, and then, then the New Testament, he finds that the, they do it a little differently. So first of all, with the rituals, the laws are pretty, pretty common. Um, you know, Old Testament laws look a lot like laws of other ancient societies, right? But the ritual, they end up actually having a goat. This is where we get the term scapegoat from, um, that they, you know, lay hands on um, and the sins of the people are sort of transferred to the goat and, and it's exiled, right? So they don't practice human sacrifice. So that's a little different than some ancient societies. Um, but when it comes to the, the mythology, um, other ancient societies will, t- will tell their stories from the perspective of the victor. So the, so the, they'll, they'll tell these stories so that they don't realize that there are victims in society. They don't realize that they're scaping, scapegoating people. Um, and so these myths kind of keep this mechanism moving that what that Gerard calls the scapegoat mechanism, because they hide it. That's the way that we keep um, practicing it is because we don't know that the victims that we choose in our society as scapegoats are actually innocent. Right. But he says the Hebrew scriptures tend to tell stories more from the perspective of the persecuted, of the victim, of the person who becomes the scapegoat. And so he sees that in Hebrew scriptures, but he says it comes to sort of a climax in the Gospels in the New Testament because they are telling the story of a scapegoat, Jesus, um, and they they make it so that. They're very, it's very obvious that Jesus is innocent. It's very obvious that, that all of the powers in society, the religious and, um, and the political powers are plotting against him and are um, coming against him as a scapegoat. And then they're very obvious about the fact that Jesus is innocent. And so because they tell the story of the victim, in this case, Jesus, the scapegoat, then that is the revelation that helps us escape the scapegoat mechanism. Um, because we know that he is innocent and we see in the cross, in the way that um, the authorities treated Jesus, um, we see that we are a scapegoating people. And so there is, there's revelation and sort of salvation in that, in the gospels. Okay. My mind is blowing up with a, a billion thoughts right now. Uh, okay. So uh, one of them is then, of course, the gospel uh, messages we might think about it begins to spread right it begins to spread uh fr- from israel to to rome to to, to to the east and of course it's not uh going to a tabula rasa it's not going to a, a blank slate to be interpreted objectively it's it's being interacted with 
pre-existing paradigms and systems that are then so and i've understood you know different readings this idea that and as it goes west it's so impacted by plato uh and uh, this understanding of the separation of the divine uh spiritual and the fallen humanity and in in some senses then it's especially with constantine i would guess that it's then reinterpreted again through the victor's perspective uh i'm sorry i'm, I'm nerding out here but I, i'm getting to my point so the the where where i'm going is it's if if the the gospels are subverting and setting us free from the scapegoat mechanism it seems to me that the primary way that we understand or hear the gospel quote unquote the gospel in the west today still seems to affirm the classic scapegoating approach of there's a god that would love to forgive us but we are sinful and this god demands a blood sacrifice in order for us to be free from our sins mm -hmm. so we need to pray this prayer mm -hmm. in order so could you do you kind of unpack what you think was happening in the first century with this 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 revolutionary uh, movement to set us free from the scapegoat mechanism versus the repackaging maybe of how we still to this day predominantly hear the gospel? Yes, so absolutely. You have you're going in the direction that I have gone in all of my research. So my actually my dissertation, um, I argued that as we see in the gospels. Um, that the scapegoat me mechanism is exposed and that we're supposed to, Jesus is supposed to be the scapegoat to end all scapegoats. That's what Gerard calls him. Um, but as soon as even the second, I want to say the second century, it might even be the end of the first century. Um, we see people sort of reverting back to scapegoating. And what's interesting is my, my dissertation is about Ignatius of Antioch who writes letters in the first century, in the, it's the the second century, basically, but um, he basically talks about how much he wants to die um, for Jesus, um, and he ends up scapegoating himself. He does not recognize that what Jesus's death showed him and freed him from, that that is on his life, that he's that he does not need to die for it, but he wants to die. And so even as early as that, but really the scapegoat um, truth starts breaking down as soon as Christians start getting power because they are the scapegoats um, of the Roman world, right? The, the Christians were blamed for everything. Nero blamed the fire on them and everything. So, so they were scapegoats for a long time and still they, until they started getting power, until they started getting influence. Um, and then they, they, when they moved to the center, more of the center of society, then they started being the scapegoaters. They started scapegoating other people. And then you follow that throughout history. Um, and they're very much influenced by all different people that, that don't come out of the Jesus tradition, I guess you would say. Um, and then, yeah, so we end up articulating salvation in, in a very Western way instead of in the way that the gospels tell the story. Yeah, that's, it's interesting too, because then it's like the common, at least the way that like, when I read scripture, I feel like one of the um, repeating themes is like the oppressed becoming the oppressor the oppressed becoming the oppressor so it's almost like this warning is like baked in to the whole text almost yeah and then like you know if you choose to read it that way and then have the um jesus like flipping that on its head with the the scapegoat bit mm -hmm. but then like you were saying today it you know the oppressed becoming the oppressors once again and i think unfortunately um throughout uh history like you uh, demonstrated in your book the church <laughs> when it has had power 
has become uh, oppressors at times and has scapegoated um, people groups. I mean, like a very, um, I think at least in my mind, obvious example would be like the Holocaust. Yeah. Right. Um, That like, (laughs) there were Christians doing this. It was like, how? But again, it's this, that scapegoat mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there like, I don't know any other examples or times you can think of uh, where the church, where you have seen the church um, scapegoating uh, other individuals or people groups. Yeah. So the first, I don't want to say half, but it's almost the first half of my book is um, the scapegoating of women. And so the the easiest example to go to, and really the most painful example is uh, witch hunts. Like those start pretty early in medieval times. Um, and what they will do is they'll, they usually target women who are a little out, outliers, like they may be widows or single or educated, or they're people who um, are, are pushing a little, get, a little bit against the, um, the teachings of the church when it comes to what women should do and what women you know, shouldn't do. Um, and so they, they tend to scapegoat women and just call them witches. Like that's the way that they did it. And it worked because, you know, such a superstitious time period, but it also worked is because the people in power were doing it, you know, and then it got everybody scared. And so even, you know, other women would turn in women as being witches because, um, there was so much fear going on. So women were scapegoated. That's the most obvious way, but of course, women are scapegoated throughout history, sexual scapegoats, economic scapegoats, everything. And so my the whole first half of my book is going to document all of that um, and how it continues today, too. I, I, Jennifer, I, I just think this is the implications. This is so critical. It, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's not shocking, but it, it's it's classic uh, power dynamics. And and as you said, anytime the church became powerful, uh, it we we then placed Jesus back into the very system that he was trying to subvert. Um, and but then thinking through the, I mean, for for so many Christians today, the most important thing is this distilled idea of this particular atonement theory, mm-hmm. of. And, and it's, I mean, it's the path to salvation. It's the path to everlasting life. It's the whole point, right? This, and the belief almost that this world's going to hell in a handbasket, but at least there's the next life as long as let's pray the prayer and let's get to heaven. And so almost all of life becomes defined through this particular lens of atonement right. of, and, and, you know, codifying and almost calcifying uh, the scapegoating mechanism. Yeah. But if we can go back then to this reading the gospel through the lens of the victim, understanding that Jesus was dismantling the scapegoating mechanism. How would you say, what are the ripple effects of that? I mean, if for us today, now you're obviously writing this book, not just for an academic purpose, but this is to transform the way we understand the world. It's a new lens through which we understand Jesus. And then that ripples out through our lives. So and, and so maybe maybe let's begin. This may sound a little funny to start this way, but maybe we begin with a, a, a different perspective on a, a, atonement theory, and then back it into how that ripples out into lives if we actually embrace the scapegoating mechanism being uh, no longer uh, activated or no longer alive. Does yeah. that make sense? Is that question yeah. is that too esoteric or too long? No, 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 not at all. Um, because a lot of the people who write about Gerard will write about atonement theory. They're going to focus on why did Jesus die. 
looking at it through Girard's lens, which is very different than most of the theories, you know, that have kind of dominated throughout church history. Um, and so, the, so according to Girard, this is, this is how atonement, um, if you want to call it that, would work. Um, it's, it's not talking about what, what God is doing to Jesus, right? It's talking about what human beings are doing to each other and let, and then Jesus is the example of, look, this is what they did to Jesus, the innocent scapegoat. Um, and so then the, the, the atonement part happens in our, our realizing, um, our tendency towards violence, um, and scapegoating and seeing that in Jesus, um, so that we will stop doing it. So it's very much a human-centered um, theory of atonement, but I think that is that's how the Gospels portray it. Like, yes, mm-hmm. you can go to Paul and you can read like little snippets of, you know, God did this or God did this, but when you look in the Gospels, what they're concerned about is telling the story of Jesus's life teaching and ministry and then telling the story of how all the powers converged on him for him to die a scapegoat's death and that he was innocent so that's what they're trying to communicate um, the gospels and so when we jump into penal substitutionary atonement um, now Chris's Victor I have a little bit more sympathy for but a lot of the theories that we 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 talk about tend to focus on Paul's interpretation of things and not necessarily how the gospels are telling the story of Jesus. Um, so yes, the ripple effects are huge <laughs> because you know, all of a sudden you're not focused on, oh, me as an individual, I'm um, achieving you know uh, heaven or some sort of salvation. You're looking at society as a whole and your part in it um, and saying, okay, we are violent people who scapegoat. And now we need to figure out how we can lift up the oppressed and marginalize those who have been scapegoated um, and make sure that we don't continue to put them on the cross as liberation theologians say. We don't, we don't wanna um, continue to crucify people or continue to scapegoat people. And that transforms society. That takes us into the kingdom of God, not us you know, saying some prayer and you know, having our soul go to heaven or something like that. Yeah, I, I love it because it has this, um, it has this like this present world vibe to it. Where it's like salvation is now, you know, it can be something that is that is active and present here in this very moment um, that we live into rather than this like thing that happens in the future. And like this world sucks anyway. So like we don't need to worry about it. Right. So it, it that seems to me at least um, to help because so I'm rambling. But one thing for me that I struggled with as a pastor is um, was like this and even, I mean, to this day, this like perceived lack of transformation in a religion that claims to like have like the Holy spirit that like does this big transfer and all this kind of stuff. When in reality, it just seems like a lot of the times us Christians just kind of look like everybody else and continue to behave in the same way that the powers of, you know, this world do. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas like, I don't know. There, there's like a frustration there for me, but with something like this, where, um, you know, Jesus breaking the scapegoat mechanism, I think also, uh, who is it? Uh, is it J. Denny Weaver, perhaps? Is he the one who wrote non- nonviolent? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of nonviolent, so I liked, I read that book forever ago, but um, it's similar in that. Uh, yeah, sorry. I was just rambling, but it just, it seems more embodied. It seems more like now things matter and 
uh, Jesus's life and death and resurrection matter in the sense that like it's bringing transformative um, action here and now, not mm-hmm. somewhere out in the future. Right. Does that make sense? And it's, yeah, and it's not just a belief. It's like you have to believe these certain things and then, you know, say them in a certain way and that saves you. No, it's it's actual changing the world, like actual changing of society, which is what Jesus came to do. Like if we believe what the gospel said, that, that Jesus came to bring God's kingdom on earth, then how is it that all we have to do is like believe something and that, that's what salvation is? No, we actually have to work towards the kingdom of God in our everyday lives, in our communities, in our societies, you know, in, in the world. Um, so it's much more embodied. Yes, I like that word. Yeah, I mean, Josh and I talked about this, and it, I'm, sh- I'm sure you're already familiar with this, but that idea, I remember earlier in my younger life, I was a, a conservative pastor, now I'm a, an Episcopal priest, and sometimes just pushing the envelope even within that fold. But uh, the idea of the kingdom of God to me was where you go after you die, you know, and um, but then, of course, when Jesus talked about it, it was not future tense. It was the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within a very present tense reality. And I remember in kind of my spiritual evolution, realizing that I was living the bulk of my life for the next one. And again, it was this belief that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. And it was just trying to get other people to believe like me so that they could get on the bus uh, yeah. to heaven. And it made them uh, caring for this planet. It, it made the the injustice in the world it just became not particularly uh critical because well of course it's going to hell in a handbasket mm-hmm. our goal is to get people to believe this as much as we can and i remember as I, that dawned on me that i was living in this future tense uh i i really it, it was shocking to me and it was a shift as as, as my it wasn't just atonement theory because it wasn't that Raleigh academic. It was a much more organic process but as that was a part of my shift of recognizing uh that it's it's this life that matters it is it is a here and now and may, yes I, I don't know what happens after i die i none of us do um but but what i do know is that this is the life that matters and it reminds me of what marx accused the church of very appropriately that the, that religion is the opiate of the masses and it's it's used by those in power to keep people uh subjected and just saying yeah this life sucks yeah my oppression sucks but don't worry you're going to have heaven later mm-hmm. and it's it's an appropriate uh charge at at the church and i think instead th- what you're describing is this is activism of the heart of of justice and peace and compassion from the bottom up and the inside out um and and this is this invitation for transformation for the here and the now um and uh when you think about um maybe as we distill down what your message in today's culture would be obviously i love unpacking i'm I'm kind of a history nerd and a theological nerd and i love unpacking it back in the first century and in the hebrew scriptures but and of course, it's it's impossible not to uh, take some of the implications of this existing scapegoating mechanism and see it clear as day in our existing political structure and all that's unfolding in America now. But mm. how would you, in terms of what, what would you love to see happen mm-hmm. if as this is more and more embraced? And let's begin with the church. Like, since we're speaking within the language of, of of Christianity, what would you love to see ripple out? And how would you like to see this begin to impact churches and lives if, if people would be open to this new understanding of the gospel, or, or old understanding of the gospel? Yeah. So, so in the book, 
I, I do talk about the gospels. I'm very new Testament oriented and I do talk about church history, but like, I think the most important thing I have to say in the book is how can we stop scapegoating people today? And what does that look like? Um, and because we scapegoat people on the margins and the people who are vulnerable, um, we have to bring those people into the into the center. Take the people from the peripheries and, and and make sure we're listening to their voices. That we are understanding their experiences in the world, um, and and listening to them talk about um, what the church has done to hurt them. You know, so I feel like what what needs to happen um, is that one, we have to admit that we're scapegoating scapegoating people, and we have always been, and we need to listen to those people that have been have become our victims. Um, the, the second to last chapter is the black scapegoat. Um, and I talk about how, um, the American church has scapegoated black people. Um, and one of the main ways that we can stop scapegoating is, is to admit, <laughs> to recognize that we're doing it, which already is a huge problem in our society today. People recognizing that's what we've done. Um, and then centering their experience centering their experiences so that we can, um, we can move forward. Like, so we're not in the center anymore. Um, white male evangelical Christianity is no longer in the center. And so, so, I mean, ideally what I want to see is that that perspective is decentered. Well, it, it makes me think. So, so as a, uh, a, a white male, um, a, a 50 year old, uh, white male gen x you're growing up in that fish tank to me my my heart is so open and and wanting to learn and also simultaneously recognizing that i'm swimming in cultural waters that were designed perfectly for my temperature right for the mm -hmm. for me to be clueless and unaware of uh this pain and so i'm just inviting and I, I mean this is work that i'm really committed to do anyway but i just want to maybe as I, as I, re I represent, maybe not the 50 year olds as much listening to this podcast, but as I represent, you know, so much of this cultural context, what are ways to, if, if we're, if I'm open, what are ways to genuinely wake up? What are ways to actually align myself more with the heart of the gospel? Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 I, and I'm sure, I mean, for me and my experience, typically that's a lot of rough edges and I'm having to get bumped up uh, against sharp edges of realizing that I've been perpetuating mm -hmm. oppression uh, and not even being aware of it. And, and, but what are some other ways that you would specifically, and, and I'm genuinely asking, yeah. what are some ways you would specifically in, invite us to, to wake up? Yeah. So it'll involve giving up power and privilege. Uh, um, and so I think that involves giving the microphone to <laughs> you know, people who are normally not heard. So, I mean, I think the future of the church, um, the positive future is, is going to be led by black women. I feel like they're doing the best work right now. And so I think that we need to highlight their voices, um, give them the microphone. Um, the people who have been in power so far, um, need to step back. And that, I mean, that's a hard thing to do, to give up positions of power, um, to give up the microphone is hard, but I think that that is, um, the first, the first step. And then, and then slowly, hopefully things will change. Um, but that's what I would say. Give, I mean, the fact that you're interviewing a woman is good. Um, interview a woman of color. I am Mexican, <laughs> but I will say that I, I think, um, finding out whose voices have been silenced 
and promoting those voices is the first step. Yeah, I think one of the um, most powerful experiences uh, that I've ever had, um, I have a friend named Keith. Uh, Keith is a pastor in Ohio. I think Keith, if you're listening and I did, and I did you wrong there, my bad dude, but I'm pretty sure it's Ohio. And uh, Keith and his wife are both black and they pastor like a predominantly white church. And uh, so he, you know, has, has shared many struggles with that with me, but I remember um, when Ahmaud Arbery was murdered, um, Keith invited me onto a zoom call and on the Zoom call, he had a panel of people. It was, uh, I think, five or six different um, Black people, all of different ages, specifically Black males. And starting, I think the youngest kid was like 15, 16, all the way up through like this guy that could be my grandfather. Um, and anyone that was on the Zoom call that was not one of uh, the panelists was not allowed to speak. Our only job was to go and to listen. Wow. And the panel, um, they just had a very open, raw, unfiltered conversation about what they just saw happen. Hmm. And it was like, I will never forget that. Like, that was one of the most powerful things um, that I have ever experienced. Okay. <laughs> and so I'm very grateful for my friend Keith for inviting me into a space like that. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting because I'm used to speaking. I love to talk. <laughs> but at the same time, it was such like a helpful and beautiful experience um, that I'm forever grateful for for Keith uh, and, and giving me that opportunity. Yeah. And that's the idea. I mean, that's what that's what needs to happen um, for sure. In churches, I mean, how many churches are pastored by, you know, white males um, if they can teach their congregations to be silent <laughs> and themselves keep themselves silent and, and listen to the voices that are um, being, being um, marginalized. I think that would make a huge difference. Yeah. The, to me, I, th I think calling the heart, call, calling this the heart of the gospel mm -hmm. uh, and, and realizing that uh, giving voice to the marginalized and for those quote unquote, in power to step back from that power uh, to out of born of compassion, born of love, born of authentically following in the footsteps of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this this is not a, a a periphery of the gospel. This is not a a, a byproduct if we uh, just love Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, but this this is this to me is what you're describing is the very heartbeat of the gospel. Mm -hmm. The what you say authentically following in the footstep of Jesus. I think that is key. And I think the reason that people are not doing a good job of that in churches is because they don't understand the Bible. <laughs> they don't know how to read the Bible, <laughs> right. um, you know? And so they have, I think that's another thing that has to happen. Like um, in our pulpits, in the churches, we have to teach people in the pew how to interpret the Bible well. Um, they don't know how to read the stories of Jesus well. Um, you know, they've, I think we, we tend to teach our people uh, this sort of piecemeal way of understanding scripture, like picking little pieces out 
and like forming them into whatever we want it to say. And we have to do away with that. We have to teach them how to read narratives and the difference between, you know, the genre of epistle and gospel. And, you know, we have to immerse them in the stories um, of the gospels. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. You know, I try to um, put us in like first person um, narratives so that we can put ourselves in the positions of the people in, in scripture um, because people aren't experiencing the Bible very well, you know, they're not, they don't understand it and they're not experiencing. It. And I think that's another thing uh, that we can do to change this so, so that they can stop like having the little formulas of this is what penal substitutionary atonement says, or, you know, this is what heaven is and, and, and push them past those formulas and say, you know, well, let's read what the Bible actually says about this. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, pushing people, it's going to have to happen, like deconstructing things, um, the way they look at scripture, the way they look at heaven, the way they look at God and Jesus. And then we have to figure out how to reconstruct. You know, this is, um, so, so this is actually landing deeply on a personal level for me, where when I'm not doing this podcast with Josh, I'm the executive director of an organization called Second Breath, and we've been teaching uh, Christian formation, mainly through the Christian wisdom tradition. We offer, you know, we have workshops, apps, blah, blah, blah. But we had, we're, we're currently working through the reality that it has been uh, written, written by and subconsciously for uh, white people. Mm. Um, and uh, we recently had uh, some people of color come through our facilitator training and through our coursework, and they were very compassionately sharing with us. They would not recommend it mm. uh, to their friends and other people of color. And, and so we're in this process and, and it's this, it's both devastating and utterly hope blossoming mm -hmm. simultaneously, uh, this process of, and then, and then allowing our work, our lives and, and our unexamined presuppositions and intentions to be uh, exposed and say, then please enter in. And, and they're doing this, they're doing this work of speaking into us, in, into our organization. And it is um, in this process, it is uh, amazing and disruptive and disorienting and beautiful. And you're right. And every, at every point I'm required, if, if this is going to be born of love to let go of power mm -hmm. at every single point and recognizing um, sometimes my ego hops in and says, you know, get, starts giving me all sorts of, you know, narratives of what I should do to kind of hold on to powers in, in clever ways. And then over and over again, recognizing that the way of love is consistently letting go of this power. Mm -hmm. uh, and anyway, so I just, I just want to name, and, and, and in, the, in that I'm in the middle of this process, these are conversations I'm having with my staff team, you know, this past week mm -hmm. to come and interview you today and hear the way that you are articulating this and nesting this, uh, not only in history and uh, Rene Girard, but also within the Hebrew scriptures and our New Testament, it has been articulated in such a distilled, poignant, uh, compassionate way. I just want to say, Jennifer, I, I don't know, I'm sure it's, it's, it's time in life too, but the way that you're describing it, it's just landing powerfully. And I, I, on a personal level, I just want to say thank you. This, this has not just been some academic theological brain candy interview for me. This has really landed in my heart. And I just want to say from my heart, thank you for the work you've done. It's really meaningful and, and impactful. Thank you. That's exactly how I want it to hit people. So that mm -hmm. um, I didn't write it to, you know, make money or to put it on my CV or anything like that. I wrote it because <laughs> right. I saw the church, the American church and how far away they are from the way of Jesus. And I said, okay, 
how can we reframe this? How can we, and I love the word you use disruptive. How can we disrupt what is happening in the American church? Um, and the answer was look at the gospels from a different way um, from the way that we have been unable to see it because we are people with power, privilege and, and wealth. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I want to echo everything Greg said, but then also to just, I think, I mean, hitting the nail right on the head, like I always have arguments with some of my friends <laughs> that are, um, that are still within uh, pastoral ministry. I'm like, yeah, guys, I think the church is dying and maybe, maybe that's like an okay thing. Um, and then one way that I found recently that I think um, softens that a little bit is I like, okay, what if I say the current form of the church needs to pass away? Yeah. And then something like uh, what you're articulating can kind of uh, step into that place. So um, it's it's been helpful to me as well, just to give me um, new language, different language uh, to use also just to better understand uh, myself and um, try to, you know, hopefully catch myself <laughs> when I start getting into some of these scapegoating patterns in my mind of, um, you know, whatever it may be, even if it's, you know, I guess for me, sometimes it can be like, oh, well, if it wasn't for those, you know, kinds of Christians and like this shit would be okay. Mm-hmm. But that's, again, that's still, that's still the same. It's still the same power. The same force is still there. So, um, I would use the word awakening, like just an awakening to this reality um, and trying to have eyes to see it when it's present, not just in other people, but in myself as well. Um, And so thank you for that, for that gift. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, for sure. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. It it really is a gift. So thanks for making the time. Where, um, where would you like people to, uh, to find you at if you want people to find you <laughs> I guess. uh like where can they connect with your work or like where would you like them to, to pick up a copy of scapegoats or okay so i'm not you know super famous so i'm still taking <laughs> facebook friends and instagram followers hey that works <laughs> yes um but uh, if you want to get my book fortress press is who um publish it um so you can find it there you can find it on amazon and other places as well um but yeah that's where you can connect with me. Perfect. We'll put some links in show notes uh, for people. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, good deal. Well, again, Jennifer, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, thanks for hanging out today. And until next time, peace and love, guys. Peace.